0: halfway through the book and then we put it on pause because we took three Sundays to look at what the scriptures talk about eldership and then we continued the pause as we looked at the Advent as we prepared for Christmas and then the last five weeks we spent uh, time looking at the five distinctives of community grace and the five things that we hope will help us to accomplish the the, the vision, uh, at least giving us a taste of that vision where where um, all cultures are coming together, a community of all cultures where Christ is king. And now in light of, the, with all that, we were like, okay, let's go back to, and finish Ecclesiastes, finish what we started, okay? Um, and so as I was studying this week, I was like, I kind of forgot what happened in Ecclesiastes, the first six chapters, and if I kind of forgot that, I'm sure you forgot that. Uh, so let me just give you a quick rundown of what's going on, okay? Key word in, in, in Ecclesiastes is this word vanity. Constantly it keeps bringing us up. It, the, the word itself is found 35 times in Ecclesiastes, and it, it means breath, vapor, uh, something quite elusive. You can't hang on to it. You can't grab it. You can't control it. Uh, so that's why some of your translations will translate it meaningless. Captures somewhat of the idea. All is vanity. We think and believe Solomon wrote this. Uh, Solomon um, certainly started out well, but um, if you know the story, he ended not so good. The wives that he took in, that he, um, he allowed them to shape his heart, and he began to pursue and follow other gods. Solomon leaves us with this book, uh, a book which speaks of in many places meaningless. Chapter one and two, the king or, or the preacher, as the text would call himself, the king searches for meaning and satisfaction, and and so he begins this pursuit of that, and he he looks for it in education. tries to find it. If I if I just get enough, enough stuff, I'll be satisfied. Problem is, he finds he doesn't, and so then he pursues pleasure, everything from sex to food to to drink. He but again. Finds no meaning and satisfaction, and then he pursues hard work. If I just work hard and and accomplish much, but again he finds no meaning and satisfaction. In chapter five, we see that money, possessions, riches don't help him either. And yet, in the midst of all of this, we've noticed a couple of times where where he just pauses and he goes, uh, "You know, it's, even where everything is vanity and meaningless, there is." The possibility of enjoying a simple meal or a hard work or something like that when we realize that everything that we have is a gift from God. And so he has these moments and then he falls back into everything is meaningless. That's the first six chapters in a nutshell. Chapter 7, our author moves from observing the world around him and and. and And he begins to list several short proverbs. A proverb is a a, a, a statement of wisdom. Wisdom that uh, I think these things have been birthed through his search. And Solomon has come to the conclusion that in this elusive, meaningless life, there are some things that are better than other things. He's actually come to that place. There are some things that are better than other things, even though all of life, as he sees, it, is meaningless. Now, what is wisdom? Maybe the best way to put it is it's applied knowledge. It's to know something and then to be able to apply it. Uh, um, we may know the emotion anger, but an, a, a wisdom would say that anger should be controlled. There's times when we should be angry, and there's times when we should control it and not let it take off. And, um, so that would be Wisdom. Elsewhere, our same author, Proverbs chapter one verse seven, says that that this knowledge, this applied knowledge, this wisdom, cannot be understood apart from God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, the text in chapter seven of Ecclesiastes is uh, quite difficult to outline. And the reason I say that is because I think I've got about six or seven different commentaries on this particular book, and every one of them outlines it differently. And so rather than outlining something for you and telling you that I've got it figured out, I don't. We're just going to simply walk through this passage. But And it looks, in some ways, it looks like he's just throwing some random uh, proverbs out, but I do believe they're connected. I want you to see the first proverb... Uh, actually it's quite positive, and most of us go, yeah, I I, I resonate with that, but it it actually connects to the very last statement he'll make in chapter 7. Okay? Tracking with me? We'll simply walk through this chapter now together. He begins with the words, a good name is better than precious ointment. Your translation might say perfume. So, in other words, a, a good reputation is better than perfume, and you'd probably go, duh. The the, the the reason he uses the language of perfume or myrrh is probably the more precise word that he's using is because it was very expensive. And so it's just another simple way is a good name is better than riches. And most of us would just go, yeah, I'm not in agreement with that. When I was living, when, when I returned and moved back to my hometown, Vauxhall, where I pastored for eight years, had uh, grown up there, gone to high school, graduated from there, uh, uh, I began to realize that pastoring in that place was actually um, quite easy for me because I I was standing on the good reputation of my grandfather, my uncles, and my dad. And so people trusted me before they even knew who I was. They kind of knew who I was, but they didn't really know me until I began to to interact with them. A good name is far more important, far better than riches. Now, Now Solomon is saying this in the context where he's constantly said all of life is meaningless. As yet, a good name is better than money. But then look at the second half of that verse. He throws it in another piece of wisdom, another proverb, and, and it seems like it's completely disconnected and incredibly pessimistic. And the day of death than the day of birth. And he says it's better, the day of death is better than the day of birth. You know, oh, my goodness, there you go again, Solomon. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral than a party. That's what he's saying. What's going on? Fesco, one commentator, writes, a birth is filled with joy and excitement. But that joy and excitement can mask our troubles. I remember peering into the face of each of my children at the hospital for the first time. And there was a joy there was an excitement, and you literally forgot what was going on in the world around you. But death, however, is incredibly different. It's filled with sadness. There's a sorrow that's, uh, that's so evident, but it, it prompts deep reflection on the significance of life, the fragility of life. It's temporary nature. don't care what funeral you've gone to and from what kind of perspective the the one leading that funeral comes from, uh, there's a sense of, in that sadness that we begin to look and examine life as it truly is. And I think Solomon is doing that. He says, as I've been seeking for wisdom, looking for meaning, I have found that wisdom is found more in the funeral than in the the natal Was it the natal room or the natal floor in the hospital now he goes on he seems to talk much about this in verses 2, 3 and 4 and then in verse 5 and 6 our author says you know what in this meaningless life he says you know what it would be wise if you listen to wise people that's in essence what he's saying in verse 5. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Rather than just listening to music that makes you feel good, he says actually sit sit down and listen to somebody who's wise even if he's telling you and correcting you. Wisdom. And then in this... Solomon seems to go, here's, here's something this is good, you need to understand this, and then he goes back to this pessimism, and in verse 7, he kind of does it again. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. It's almost as if, okay, sometimes even the wise fail. So listen to the wise, but understand that even the wise fail. Sometimes they're bribed. Sometimes oppression drives the wise into madness. Then in verse 8 and 9, he begins again to declare that some things are better than other things. Uh, verse 7 and uh, verses 8 and 9 is better In the end. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. And then uh, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Uh, it's important to be self-controlled. He says this again verse 9, be, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. He's saying, hey, this is important. This is important for you to know. Uh, Understand this. See this. These things are better. And and most of us would look at that and go, yeah, I I agree. I can see where you're getting that from. Wisdom and life has taught us the same thing. And then in verse 10, again, it seems completely disconnected, but he says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Uh, Have you been around individuals that constantly are longing for the time that once was? Maybe you're you're, uh, guilty of that yourself. Oh my goodness, things were good back then. We walked uphill both ways in the snow on the way to school, but life was so good. Solomon says... That ain't a good thing. And he doesn't actually explain why, but I think in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, uh, we know why. He said earlier at the beginning of the book, what has been is, is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Talk to somebody who grew up during in Europe during World War II. I'm going to tell you, it was a broken, evil, horrible place. Talk to somebody who walked through the Great Depression, and speaks of their hunger and etc. And they go, "Oh my goodness, things were things weren't so good." We have a tendency to go, "Things back then were really, 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 really good," or we sometimes have this tendency to think, "Oh my goodness, we're just getting better and sweeter, and everything's getting like we're moving towards utopia." But our author just says, you know what, one time from the next time, there there really is no different. Nothing really is new under the sun. Well, from that statement in verse 10, he then begins again in verse 11 and 12 and says wisdom is actually good. Notice verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves a life of him who has it. In other words, it's good to know things and it's good to be able to apply this knowledge in such a way because it actually is an advantage to us. Here's a couple of suggestions and thoughts. And then, again, in verse 13 and 14, uh, he, 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 he waffles again. Not completely. Look at what he says. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Actually, I think what he's doing here is this is another wise statement. He's trying to help us understand that in, in the moment when we're going through great prosperity, there's great joy, there's that's going on. That is from God. But so is adversity. He wisely says that God is in complete control of both. He wisely says in verse 13 that, that uh, we need to consider what God has done or what God is doing and, and recognize that we can't straighten those things out. We, we, there's, a, there's a lack of control. So even though we can be wise, we can't fix a lot of things. beginning to recognize the sovereignty of God and his own inability. Now, understand who Solomon was. The wisest man there ever was. The wealthiest man of of that time period. Uh, He he could have whatever he wanted. It was at his fingertips. And yet, in all that wisdom and all those riches and in all that might, he could not straighten what God had made crooked. Flowing out of this, I think his understanding of how finite he is and how temporary he is and how limited his powers really were, he says this in verse 15, in my vain life I have seen everything. He's just been telling us that some things are better than others. He's just been telling us that God is in complete charge and control of all things. And then he begins to wax eloquently again and say, everything is meaningless. My life is meaningless. In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing." I'm sure you've seen that. I'm sure you've seen somebody who's lived a righteous life, who's done everything, from at least from our perspective, and like, man, it looks like they've done everything right, and, and yet they die early, or they die what seems to be unfair. Life seems to be unfair. That's what he's talking about. As yet there's the wicked that just seem to have everything at their fingertips, what they want and desire that's there. And, and it seems to me that what, what, what happens here as is, is Solomon is stopping and considering this, he moves into this um, cynicism, almost moves into despair. He says, what's the point? And he, and he makes a statement that seems odd He says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. He's just finished saying wisdom's good. You should pursue those who have wisdom. You should sit at their feet. He says, but don't be too wise. Now, Where else in Scripture does it say don't be too righteous? I think what Solomon is doing is I don't get it. Life is crazy. This is meaningless. I'm just going to throw up my hands in the air and go, what's the point? As he does throughout much of the book. Ecclesiastes is a honest look at a life. it really is and so throughout you have these statements that like you puzzle us. he should know better than this, but I think he's just being honest, truthful and then in verse eighteen, listen to what he says. it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that. Withhold not your hand, for for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. What's he saying there? It is good that you should take hold of this. Take hold of what? That the righteous perish and the wicked man's life seems to be prolonging that in my vain life I've seen everything. He says he should take hold of this because he says if you want meaning, if you want wisdom, if you want to be able to understand these things, you need to look outside of yourself and you need to look to God. Only he can help us make sense of this crazy broken world. Help us outside of ourselves, And with this we get to verse 19. He has this aha moment. He says... Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. Wisdom is good, but it comes from the one who we are called to fear. And then in verse 20, the very crux of the problem, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I think at this point Solomon actually puts his finger on the problem. You know how he started? A good name is better than precious ointment. A good reputation is better than ointment. A good reputation is better than riches. In verse 20, he's actually saying none of us actually have a good name. None of us actually have a good reputation. None of us are righteous. I think he puts his finger on the issue. Right there. When you look in the mirror, do you go, my goodness, I'm pretty good? Or do you have a more biblical view of yourself? go, you know what? I fall short every day. There is no one righteous, no, not one. That's what the Scriptures say. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. We all fall short there. None of us really have a good name, a good reputation. Yes, I could probably look over my shoulder and go, I got a better name than him. But an honest look in the mirror, that's reality. And I think, I think Solomon is putting his finger on the problem. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He actually explains it in verse 21 and 22. Do not take heart to all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. He says, don't take it. When you, when somebody's speaking ill of you and you hear about it, don't take it to heart. And then he doesn't say don't take it to heart because it's not really true. What does he do? He says in verse 22, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. The reason you shouldn't take it to heart is because you've done the same thing. You thought nobody was listening, but God was listening. God heard. You mumbled it under your breath, but God heard. You said this about one of your politicians, but God heard. Why is that? Why is that? Because surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Elray included. You know, one of the best pieces of wisdom I've ever heard when it comes to Marriage was this little book called "When Sinners Say I Do," And the whole point of his entire book is simply this: The problem with your marriage, Elroy, is you. I like to think the problem with my marriage is Lynn. And she likes to think it's me. And the reality is, it is me, and it is Lynn the reality is surely there is not a righteous man or woman on earth who does good and never sins. Well, our author continues in verses 23 and 24. He says, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me this is the one that God says, I want to give you wisdom. And, and, and he now begins to recognize, even in his pursuit of wisdom, he realizes that wisdom is far from him. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? He knows a few things. He knows that a good reputation is better than riches. He knows that it's wise to be patient. He, he recognizes that it's good to self-control your anger. He, he's seeing those things are better, but he, at the end of the day, he realizes that he's so far away from wisdom, and yet he's been pursuing it with all his might. Verses 25. Turn my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom. And the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. As he's pursuing all this wisdom, as he's trying to figure out life, as he's trying to make, he's trying to understand the meaning and where he can find satisfaction in this broken, crazy world. I think in verse 27, he begins to paint an autobiography of himself. He says, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. I think he's going, you know what, the, there's the prostitute who's trying to pull me away. And thank God I'm wise enough to walk away from that. But then he says something crazy hard that's hard to understand. Look at what he says in verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. He's talking about himself while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. This is what he's found. One man among a thousand found, but a woman among all these I have not found. It sounds like he's saying, okay, there is one man out of a thousand, one out of a thousand of these men are trustworthy or righteous or whatever he's trying to say, but I haven't found a single woman that fits in that perspective. Now, you ladies, you having trouble with that? I hope so. What's going on there? Well, there's some debate on that, but I think Solomon is actually looking at his own life. If you know the story of Solomon, how many wives did he have? How many concubines did he have? He began wrestling and realizing in that in in that place that that the most intimate of of places. He begins to realize that even all these females, he hasn't found one. Who's the one male that he's found? Some think it might be Jesus. I think maybe he's looking in the mirror thinking, that's me. Kidner says this of, it might have been better if Solomon had cast his net less widely than among a thousand. point is, Solomon goes, as he's looking around at the world around him and the people around him, including the, the, the many wives that he's tried to find satisfaction and meaning out of life, he's begin to realize that it ain't there. Not a one. And then he concludes, which what I think is somewhat of an aha moment, He says, see this alone. I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. When God created the heavens and the universe, what did he say? He says it is good. When he created man and female, he says it is very good. What God created was good, but Adam and Eve, and we likewise, With our many schemes, with our many plans, with our evil plans, we've chosen a way that has brought about destruction. The reason this life is so vain and meaningless and pointless is because of what we've done. We're the problem. That's what Solomon's saying. So, what do we do with all this? I think our author helps us to recognize it in truth. None of us really have a good name. We fall, all of us, we've fallen short. Wisdom is good and beneficial, yes, but ultimately it's beyond us and, and it's found outside of us. It's found only in God. Now now, remember, Solomon is writing to us some 900 years before Jesus. Uh, he's, 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 this is only part of the story. He doesn't have the big picture He's writing within a greater story. Remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus also said something, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. A recognition that I fall short. There has to be a poverty of spirit on my part that I that I don't measure up, that I that I need to look beyond myself, that I need I need someone, I need someone who has the truth, who has the way, who knows the way, who has the life. I need that person. Maybe that's why the one in the thousand is ultimately Jesus. Only He is the way, the truth, and the life. The Apostle Paul said In Christ all the treasures of wisdom are hidden. Colossians chapter two, verse three. My dear people, it is in Christ that we realize that sorrow and death and what it actually is. Where did it come from? The guy in the mirror. I'm responsible. It's in Christ that we recognize that when we repent, when we, fall, when we recognize, acknowledge that we've fallen short, to, that we curse under our breath. That When we repent, we are joined to God. It is only in Christ that we begin to make sense of a seamless, seemingly, seemingly broken world. It is broken. It is only in Christ that we make sense of that. We begin to realize that that in our adversity, in our pain, in our suffering, God is actually at work conforming us to be like him. I, I can't understand it unless there's, I can look to Jesus. That doesn't mean the pain is is less real. that doesn't mean the pain goes away, but it helps me understand It's only in Christ that I begin to realize that death has been conquered and and there is a hope beyond the grave. Yes, that's where I'm headed. I'm headed to the grave. There will probably be some day where people will be standing around my casket and they'll be reflecting upon life and the fragility of life and the temporaryness of life. But that's where we're all headed. It's only in Christ that I begin to realize that I've conquered death and there is that I live in a world with windows, as C.S. Lewis says. I live in a world where there is a, an eternity. There's something beyond this world. And those who have faith in this Jesus and what just Jesus has done, 1 Corinthians 15, oh my goodness, there's hope for us. Ecclesiastes, book of, it just speaks it and says it the way it is, but he begins to touch his finger on the problem. I am. And when we see Jesus and when we begin to look at Ecclesiastes through the life of Jesus, through the lens of Jesus, we begin to recognize even clearer what Solomon couldn't see. Let me pray. Lord, this is an incredible book. Thank you. I thank you for Solomon who wrestled through these things and preserved these words for us so that we might also wrestle through these things. I pray, Father, that each of us would, would have an honest understanding of the world we live in and recognize how broken it truly is, how broken we truly are. That we begin to recognize with greater clarity that we're responsible for the, the brokenness in our life and around us. But Lord, I also pray that with faith we can be not only joined to You because of what Jesus has done. But Lord, you you would give us a clearer picture that when sickness shows up on our doorstep, when, when financial issues step up on our doorstep, Lord, we begin to look in the mirror and we begin to look past the mirror and begin to look at you and recognize that you're probably doing something sweeter. You're conforming us to be like you, so that we 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 would grow, and people would go like, "My goodness, that person looks like Christ." And Lord, that we'd look beyond that, and we go, "You know what? This is this this world is not our home. We're just passing through. And someday we're going to be with you, where there is no more sorrow, there is no more pain, there is no more brokenness." Day after day, we'll be staring in the face of the wise one, Jesus himself. Lord, would you transform us by your word? In your precious name, we pray.